all those platforms, um, which are invaluable in their own right, uh, are segregating us from that environment in which uh, we, as human beings, need to be immersed. Uh, and the only way I can see us really being part of that environment, really going out there and, and, and doing extensive research as human beings, melding with technology, is to become aquanauts or to be aquanauts and go out there for extended periods of time. Not, not hours or minutes, but days, weeks, months, and maybe even longer. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the See As Many Voices podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Greg Stone, and it's a really amazing week. I've got my great friend Fabien Cousteau, uh, part of uh, an amazing family legacy, and he's an amazing individual in his own right. And hello, Fabian. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Greg. How are you doing? I love your nautical theme. <laughs> What's that? Oh, you mean the background? Does it look nautical? The background. Yeah, it's great. It's me, actually. I have my little, uh, this case here is my little treasure trove of little artifacts and stuff that I've uh, accumulated over the, over the years. And I see you've got a virtual background. That must be a Proteus, huh? Yeah, well, with this, uh, with this lockdown and all that, it feels uh, like I, I, I need to at least pretend like I'm underwater <laughs> since we are uh, we're separating at home. So <laughs> I'll put on one, one of my backgrounds uh, and see if it uh, works and then we'll get to get going here. This is my one of my favorites. Ah, yes. Uh, how do I look on your end? Is it, is it broken up or does it work? Looks look good. Looks good. There's a little ghosting if you move too much too fast, but that happens with with Zoom. I'm probably going to take it off here in a minute, but that's Canton Island uh, in the Phoenix Islands. It's in the middle of. I mean, if you take the Pacific Ocean and turn it into a bullseye, this is the bullseye, right? Wow. Right, up, right on the equator, and uh, it's one of my study sites that I've been going to for like 20 years, and it's got the strongest, most resilient corals uh, I've ever encountered. They've been, they've been exposed to the oscillations of El Nino for millennia, right? So they've been bred to withstand these temperature swings of like 10 degrees centigrade uh, without any problem at all. Whereas you know, more constant environments like the Great Barrier Reef, for example, if it goes two, three degrees off, they're just, they just fall over 10. Uh, so that's an appropriate one for me for now. And then you've got your really cool looking uh concept there now that's proteus right uh well that that's just one uh, that, that's just a, a virtual background but if uh if we want to look a, a little bit more closely that's this is proteus back here okay. I, I don't know that this one has a diver in it but uh it's it's, it's shallow enough uh so that you can have a diver i do want to learn all about that you know i i just saw you recently in aspen that was really a pleasure and uh I, so I, I did get a sense of it there, but I really didn't get the details and I intentionally waited until today. <laughs> <laughs> Real time on this. Uh, you have, uh, you know, when I was growing up, of course, your grandfather's shows were deeply inspiring to me. Um, and, but also in those days, you'd get like popular mechanics and these magazines would have covers with underwater cities on them and yeah. it was like this thing you thought was going to happen and then suddenly it didn't happen and everything went into space <laughs> which i'm also supportive of but 
year reminded me of those exciting visions from the 60s and 70s where we actually thought about expanding and exploring and living under the water. So tell us about what that is. <laughs> well, and, and that's a, a great point, uh, Greg. I think you and I uh, dream uh, uh, very similar dreams in many ways. And yeah, back in the, I mean, I wasn't around till the late 60s. That's, that's when I was born. But, um, but back in the 60s, I mean, I guess what, what's old is new again. Uh, and we're, we're dreaming dreams that uh, they were thinking of back then. And uh, between space and, and ocean exploration, there was certainly uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of parallels. Uh, obviously, space, uh, at least in the next few decades after that, uh, gained the upper hand in terms of uh, the development of technologies, the development of, uh, of the ability of staying out for extended periods of time, including, of course, the famous International Space Station, uh, which orbits uh, our planet today, which is inspiring in many ways, of course. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, and obviously we're, uh, at least for me, uh, I'm a little biased, but uh, I would imagine that uh, ocean exploration uh, as it pertains to uh, uh, living uh, for extended periods of time uh, was uh, in many ways um, sidelined uh, for the ocean. Uh, habitats have existed in the past, uh, as you mentioned, uh, starting with uh, the Conshelf series of habitats with my, my grandfather, Conshelf One, uh, and then Sea Lab and Hydro Lab and Heldegard and, 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 and all those other ones that, uh, that a lot of uh, various countries and, and institutions had, had put out there. But um, ultimately, uh, space won out in the short term on, uh, on some of that. And, Here's the inside of, of Proteus, by the way. Uh, and, and so I think it's, it's high time that we revisit that uh, in a way that's conducive to expanding the quiver of technologies for ocean exploration. We've explored less than 5% of ocean world to date, of course, all 3.4 billion cubic kilometers of volume. So there's a lot out there. Uh, especially in the, the mid and deep layers, but even the shallow layers have barely been uh, explored in any extensive uh, terms. And so to be able to build an underwater habitat or house underwater akin to uh, you know, a modern day Aquarius or modern day uh, 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 con shelf would really give us a platform to do extensive research on site of that final frontier. And I think that's a really, really important point that we're missing. We have boats, we have AUVs, ROVs, and probes to some extent. We have submersibles, of course. But invariably, all those platforms, um, which are invaluable in their own right, uh, are segregating us from that environment in which uh, we, as human beings, need to be immersed. Uh, and the only way I can see us really being part of that environment, really going out there and, and, and doing extensive research as human beings, melding with technology, is to become aquanauts or to be aquanauts and go out there for extended periods of time. Not, not hours or minutes, but days, weeks, months, and maybe even longer. Very well articulated, Fabian. Um, very well articulated. And then I totally agree with that philosophy. Having, you know, I've got saturation experience like you do. I've been in the, you've got the Aquarius up now behind you. Uh, you spent famously 31 days in it, I think, was it? 
31 days, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is, uh, for those who don't know what Aquarius really is, it's, a, it's the last remaining undersea marine uh, laboratory. And it's about uh, 550 internal square feet. Uh, and six, up to six people uh, live within that nice cozy space. So anyone who has a, a studio apartment in New York City and, and some, uh, some roommates will probably be familiar with that kind of space limitation. <laughs> And you gave me that number because I've been, you know, I've done three missions in her. Uh, we had them all, mine were only like seven days, one was 10 days, and the other one was, I think, eight days, you know, sort of like shortish missions. But I, I never knew the square footage. I used to live in a studio apartment that was 400 square feet. <laughs> so I got roommates. <laughs> also, you know, I want to I wanna emphasize one of your points, which is a very good one. You said 3.4 billion cubic kilometers of ocean. Right now, people I found don't really have a good sense of what a billion means. Now I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a little tool that has been helpful to me. How many? How long do you think a, a million seconds adds up to? Well, I'd have to do a quick calculation of that. Uh, Twelve or fifteen days. Two days. Twelve or fifteen days is a million seconds. Okay. Now, how long do you think a billion seconds is? About uh, a few months. <laughs> I'll just, I'm guessing. <laughs> it's 32 years. 32 years. Okay, great. You go from a million seconds is 12 days. Yeah. And a billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds, I believe, is about 32,000 years. So the point is 3.4 billion cubic kilometers is an enormous amount of volume. You know, people think about million and billion, it's hard to like get the, it's an exponential transformation uh, uh, between the two. That's a huge volume of that people didn't realize that you just described on our planet. It's the largest known livable space in the universe that we're, we're aware of, um, on planet Earth. 90, what is it? It's 90, 8% of the livable space on the planet is in the ocean or something like that. It's really high. Yeah, and, and that's what I, I, I try and quote because what people don't relate to, because we're human beings, we live on a, on a veneer, right? That, that terrestrial veneer. Uh, and, and so you add that third dimension into uh, this living space discussion, all of a sudden it becomes a huge place. Yeah, yeah, well... You know, you're, the way you built the argument about how we need to be there, we need to live there, you know, I'm, I'm totally with you because when I was in Aquarius, and by the way, we should try to call him during this podcast, our friend Ian Summerhalder. When Ian Summerhalder and I came down to visit you during your, your famous uh, record-breaking 31-day saturation mission, and I was like, for me, it was like coming home because I know that thing so well. But when I, when I was in it, I just, you know, I'd spend all day outside and then in the evening, if my dive buddy didn't want to go, I, I had a problem with one of my dive buddies. He was like kind of a, he wanted to stay inside most of the time. I could go out on the hookah. And, you know, it's just like, it's a different thing. You really get to know the reef around that aquarium, around that habitat, like you can't during normal, you know, tank dives from the surface. So these visions for living in the ocean, I believe, I believe will come true one day as technology increases and exponentially it makes these things more uh, possible. And it was really a theme in my last book, 
the soul of the sea and the age of the algorithm where I was looking at past industrializations and trying to look a little bit over the horizon into the fourth industrial revolution, which is big data, um, renewable energy, uh, high-tech solutions. And it was co-authored with uh, uh, Nishan Dignarian. And it may be that one day we can get a technology that uh, where material science and manufacturing could make spaces underwater quickly, you know, and affordably. And that's where we humans have always been, part of our nature is to go explore and expand, and right? And we've just finished colonizing the whole planet terrestrially. Now what's left? Well, some of us anyway. I mean, others would, would rather have a, a, someone else go out there and do it uh, because uh, for, for various reasons, but we're all at least, at the very least, armchair explorers. And, and we love to follow these, these adventures to, to the some of us who, who want to step into the unknown and take those risks, of course, but those risks, uh, if, if well calculated, are definitely worth it. Uh, you've touched on a whole bunch of points there that, that I found very interesting during Mission 31, and I'm sure during, during your missions as well, which is uh, everyone reacts differently. And something that uh, we made, we tried to make sure uh, was judging uh, the candidates for Mission 31 based on their uh, physiological and psychological parameters. And you were mentioning that you loved going out into the water column and your dive buddy would rather stay inside. We had some, some very interesting uh, data points with regard to our, our six-person team. Granted, it's only a six-person team, but the reactions, the, 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 the emotional reactions of staying underwater for a long period of time in something the size of a school bus uh, or based out of something the size of a school bus. And that was that uh, I felt like it was home. After 31 days, I didn't want to go back to the surface. That was my most, most depressing moment of the mission is having to give up that luxury of time at the bottom to go to the surface. Whereas a couple of our team members had a varied, uh, various different um, reactions. Uh, one of them uh, was happy to come back to the surface and rejoin the family and friends and everything else. A couple of the others could have stayed down a, a couple more weeks. Um, and uh, we had one person who had to be switched out in the middle because he was more than ready to get out. Uh, and, and so that, that was something that could feasibly, you know, uh, if the, the time was extended, could have been potentially very dangerous because when people are starting to feel... Um, trapped and, 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 and maybe uh, un more than uncomfortable, they start reacting in ways that are unpredictable and are uh, in extreme environments, extraordinarily dangerous. So you have to, you have to judge all of that. I, I do believe that we pretty much have the technology at this point, maybe not the economics, but the technology at this point to build uh, habitats uh, for extended deployment. Uh, and we have to take into account the human factor, of course, to make it as, as homey, as comfortable as possible so that you can bring with you some of the elements that, that would extend the, the psychological parameters of stay underwater. Uh, I don't know if, uh, and physiologically, of course, we can tackle some of those issues as well. Um, but, uh, you know, it really, there's a very specific psychological makeup for those who want to venture forth <laughs> for extended periods of time into that alien world. Uh, and uh, it's what makes astronauts astronauts. It's what makes 
certain people want to sign on to colonize Mars. Uh, but I would imagine the vast majority of us enjoy this little oasis in space too much to go uh, uh, that far out into space. <laughs> well, you, you brought up something really, uh, I think, important and interesting. Well, maybe more interesting than important, <laughs> but it was the, uh, the, the, the psychological component of uh, who can withstand that kind of environment. And that leads to NASA actually has used the Aquarius as a training site for astronauts to, because it simulates in many ways being in space, having to think about pressure differentials all the time and, uh, and living in a closed environment. Uh, you know, and they've, I don't know if they still do or not, but I know for a while they were. And, but I want to point, point out to our listeners and viewers that um, the pressure differentials is something that is an enormous challenge in the ocean because of the, uh, if you go up into space, you know, you, you and I are in 14, what, 14 pounds per square inch is the pressure around us. And that's essentially the weight of one square inch up into the atmosphere. That's the weight of the atmosphere coming down on us. One ATM. Every 33 feet in the ocean, you double, you, you add another 14 pounds per square inch. That's so, still, those who speak metric. That's <laughs> <laughs> the majority of the planet. <laughs> background, I think, is another key to your success and amazing uh, thing. Um, as you go down in the ocean, you hit that every 33, every 10 meters. Up in space, it's only once. So the, right. if you go to the Smithsonian and you look at the spacecrafts that are on display there, I'm always amazed how thin they are. <laughs> They're like made of tin foil because it's not the pressure they deal with up there. There's other other factors that they have to they have to deal with, but the ocean has a tremendous pressure pressure barrier to get down deep. How deep do you plan to go with this? Well. You know, that's that's a great point and one that uh, I'm glad you brought up because most people don't even think about it. Well, you know, we, and, I, and I make this mistake all the time of, of equating aquanauts and astronauts as being very, very similar in, in form and function. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Physiologically, you're, you're subject to a lot of variances underwater. Um, and in some cases, in some uh, definitions, it's an even more extreme environment. And although before you become an astronaut, you first have to become a scuba diver and, and it's great training and anecdotes for what you may be facing in space, especially with the, the exercises that they have to do. Um, the further down you go in the water column, the, the more pressure is exerted on, on bodies, including physical bodies, uh, as well as technology, as well as uh, uh, different equipment. Uh, I, I got to tell you, um, before I answer your question, I'm sorry, uh, some of the things that were, we never even thought of during Mission 31, and I don't know if it was the same when you went down, but uh, our batteries, our lithium ion batteries were acting very differently uh, depending on the types of batteries that they were and depending on types of, of uh, technology that we were using, whether it was cameras or, or other. Some days they would charge well, some days they wouldn't, some days they would drain very quickly. Some, it, it was not, uh, not part of our studies, not part of our research, but something definitely to point out as, as we're talking about uh, pressure exerting um, um, a lot of, of, of difficulties on, on various things. And uh, as far as, as an aquanaut, being saturated, even just at three atmospheres, right? At 60 feet, 66 feet, whatever. It allows you to go out in that water column uh, because you're saturated, uh, I'll put in quotations indefinitely, 
but certainly for extended periods of time, uh, as you as you 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 saw, and because we were able to spend that much more time in the water column, that underwater city, in the case of Aquarius, which is a coral reef, those the residents of the reef started accepting you as part of the reef because you were consistently going back, and and they didn't perceive you as an alien threat from the surface. Uh, you know, diving down, you know, scuba divers, especially uh, for me, I, I find that limit of time very frustrating coming from the bottom come and then having to go back up. So that, that unprecedented access is pretty amazing. As far as going deep, yeah. because you're starting at three atmospheres, you can go down to 150 feet for five and a half hours with no deco time and so on and so forth. So it does extend the range of an aquanaut to go much deeper. Uh, you know, Proteus itself uh, being the first uh, an international space station underwater will have a little brother much deeper at about 70, 75 meters, which allows us to be based on Heliox and extends our range even further as human beings. Uh, so now we're talking about going down to six, seven or more hundred feet. Now commercial divers have been doing this on very short stints. Um, for for uh, oil exploration and other reasons. But uh, for us, it allows us to do science uh, much deeper. There are, hum there are physiological limits. Uh, beyond that, it becomes very, very complicated. But uh, until we perfect liquid breathing and, and, and all that. But uh, what allows us to go deeper is the, uh, the fact that this uh, future International Space Station underwater will have a submersible docking station and ROV deployment. So we will be able to extend the range beyond physiological limits. That's, that's really, uh, that's very inspiring to me. Um, and do you envision uh, the initial location, I believe, is in the Caribbean, is that right? Well, yeah, first location uh, is going to be in Curaçao. They are, uh, they've been extraordinarily excited and, and uh, wonderful uh, hosts uh, for this. And uh, so we're, we're excited about that. Uh, the, the idea is not just to have one habitat in one location, uh, although it is a very target rich environment for many, many reasons. It's got a beautiful coral reef as far as the Caribbean is concerned. Uh, there are a lot of issues also happening in the Caribbean, as you know, uh, and so that gives us a, a, a fantastic monitoring station and research station in one, so we can add a better finger on the pulse of the Caribbean. But having one or two in the Pacific, maybe North Pacific, South Pacific, having one in the Indian Ocean, having one in the Mediterranean, and so on, and, and a couple in the Atlantic, would allow us to have a network to have a much better uh, uh, feeling for what's going on in the ocean so that we stop becoming reactive on land in terms of our decision making and start becoming proactive and, and predictive of what's going on before things happen. You know, Fabian, I feel a moment right now in history where uh, ocean, oceanography, ocean exploration, ocean science, however you want to call it, is potentially being disrupted by uh, initiatives like yours, and there's a few others out there. Uh, one I can point to is Aqualink. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, uh, Pete Reeve uh, went to this island actually behind me uh, a year and a half ago to install temperature loggers on the reef with me. And, you know, I went down with a pneumatic drill that I bought at Home Depot <laughs> and ran it off for my first stage. 
And after you drill two holes, you got to throw it out and get a new drill because it's not made to be used underwater. <laughs> and I had underwater uh, cement, and then I put the temperature logger in, and with some a buoy underwater to try to hopefully find it a year from now because it'll record the temperature every 30 seconds. And afterwards, he said to me, Greg, is this a state of the art in, in your marine biology? And I said, I'm afraid it is. He said, this is archaic. And he went and founded a company called Aqualink that has these buoys that record pictures, temperature, and other sensors real time, transmit it to a buoy, to a satellite, back to where you are. And listeners, viewers, aqualink.com, go to it. If you're a researcher or want to be a citizen scientist, you can participate and become part of a new uh, investigation of the ocean, which is very different from the way we've done it in the past. Like you have proposed uh, here with these observatories, and I want you to know that I'm personally and professionally committed to supporting you in any way that I can, because I, I love it. I just love it. I think this is definitely the future. And starting in the Atlantic is a great idea. That's, uh, that's where I started, where you started. I always like to remind myself that it's the, the youngest ocean on the planet, mm -hmm. and, uh, a relatively uh, small one. And then the Pacific is like the, for me, the ultimate you know, destination point, because that's the highest biodiversity. You put the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean together, it's still smaller than the Pacific. You know, it's like <laughs> the mother Pacific Ocean. So <laughs> uh, I started in the Caribbean in my own research career. Well, I started in, the, I started in Boston, actually, in the Gulf of Maine, uh, diving in very cold water. But I got down to the warmth of the Caribbean studying whales in the 1980s. But uh, the Pacific is really where I feel at home. Yeah. It, it is a beautiful place. And I, I, there, there's validity to each one of those locations. Um, you know, uh, you know the, the Caribbean's great because it's a testbed because there's so much human activity in the area. You can certainly uh, monitor the, the, the impact that that has on the ecosystem as well. Uh, from everything from, you know, noise pollution, which no one talks about, uh, to, of course, all the other things that people talk about, plastics and so on and so forth, uh, as well as looking at, in, in all these various parts, the, the, the microscopic to the macroscopic uh, can really bring in uh, some pretty significant data points uh, and some pretty significant research, especially, you know, we're, we're talking about nothing but COVID and everything else these days because we're all facing this pandemic. But that's a great, uh, that, that's a great point or great example of something we can seek answers to and combat by coming out with the yeah. answers from the ocean. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a chemical soup. Absolutely. And you've picked the best place, by the way, in the Caribbean. Um, it's as close as you get to the Pacific <laughs> in that area. Yeah. In terms well, we, we love the variance. You know, it's on a seamount, so you, you get depth very quickly. So for pragmatic reasons, it's great. We also um, are going to be located in a marine sanctuary, so, so hopefully it's not as... Uh, yeah. I, I've been there, and it seems like a, a great um, area that will hopefully be the lesser disturbed of the areas in the Caribbean. Uh, but uh, there's good water flow in that area. There are pelagics. Uh, there's, of course, residents. There's all sorts of really neat stuff that we can dive deep into, no pun intended. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we, we put up uh, on the OLC site um, a little bit of information for Proteus for those who want to dive in a little bit deeper. No, again, no pun intended, uh, which is uh, FabianCousteauOLC.org. Uh, but ultimately, 
all these technologies, be it the buoys, the probes, are, are part of a matrix uh, that adds to the quiver of, of technologies and approaches that we can do that research from that we absolutely need to because whether you live on the ocean front or a thousand miles away, we're all beholden to the ocean for uh, our health, our well-being, and our existence in general, and especially for the future of our uh, generations. Oh, so exquisite. Um, yes, and oh, by the way, we do have a podcast on sound pollution uh, with uh, Dr. Simone Bauer Pickering and movie uh, soundtrack composer, musician John Powell. It's a fascinating discussion about sound and sound pollution in the ocean, listeners and viewers, which you can, you can check out. Um, and uh, yeah, the, uh, um, you've just really put it well, uh, our dependence on the ocean. And, and by the way, we're going to put all those links on our website so people can find you and find the projects. And I will promote it. Um, this is the future. This is a, we're in an entrepreneurial time. Again, for some strange reason, you'd think that that time would have passed, but it hasn't. Um, along with you, the buoy system I just described, Aqualink, I know a young, uh, younger scientist named uh, Austin Gallagher, who's come up with a deep camera drop system mm -hmm. for under $10,000. Yeah. This one goes down to six kilometers, Fabian. And he can set it, and then you send an acoustic signal it drops the sacrificial weight and it comes back up with uh, footage. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with, we used to call them rope cans because we had to put them on the end of a big long rope and pull them up and down. And $7,000 of that is the acoustic release mechanism. So if there's a workaround, you could get those down to a few thousand dollars. Now imagine if you had those distributed with citizen scientists and scientists and had a systematic exploration, or even a wiki approach that you then retroactively systematize. Uh, I think we are at a point where our knowledge of the ocean can go through a, like a rapid expansion, almost like the universe in the early phases of, <laughs> remember there was the, the rapid expansion phase and then it started, <laughs> we need one of those for oceans, I think. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm all for it. Um, you're, what, go ahead. I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's, one of the things that always has puzzled me is in the in at least in the United States and North America, we spend a hundred times more in space exploration than we do ocean exploration, uh, and that's shifting a little bit, but it's not shifting fast enough. And as my, and I'm a big I, like you, I'm a big proponent of space exploration. I love it. You know, sign me up if we're going to go see the yeah. you know and explore the oceans of Europa and Mars. But but you know this is this is such an amazing place and and as you mentioned we need more attention on the ocean because of it the fact it's a pragmatically speaking it's our life support system but also because there's so much opportunity out there that 3.4 billion kilometers uh, cubic kilometers of volume and and the fact that it houses 90% of our, our of our species many of them the millions and millions of them that are still unknown uh, and we can go out there with, with affordable technology. We can go out there with platforms such as Proteus. We can go out there with new technologies that have yet to be invented. There's so much opportunity out there to really go and, and learn more about this, this, um, this bed, uh, this, this thing that makes us so unique uh, in the universe, or at least in our, in, our, in our galaxy right now, which is this uh, oasis in space. 
um, it, it, it does afford us a lot of opportunity technologically, economically, and of course, on a life-sustaining level, but we know so little about it. It's puzzling to me we haven't gone out there more. Yeah, me too, me too. You know, the, the name of this series is The Sea Has Many Voices. We borrowed that from T.S. Eliot's uh, writing. And it was very, by intention, this program, this series is meant to get a variety of voices to the table because we believe, and I know you do too, that it's time society actually orient itself to the ocean, <laughs> which we have not done yet. Uh, we've been so terrestrially oriented uh, we've sort of forgotten about the ocean, yet the ocean is the life support system, as you described it, for our planet. And the fate of humanity and the fate of the oceans are the same. Uh, as the ocean goes, so goes humanity. And uh, it's high time we get off our, in American lingo, get off our horse and to it. You know, we got <laughs> This is a family show, right? <laughs> Back to your, your, uh, your part of a legacy, uh, a Cousteau legacy, a very powerful, important legacy. Uh, and you're bicultural, uh, French, American. You know, you sound to me like a guy that grew up in Connecticut, right? But you can go to alien. <laughs> I've moved 32 times in my life. No one would know the difference, right? You're, you're like both. Can you talk about it? all that a little bit is there sure sure well you know um good it, it being being uh the third generation in my family um th there's it's a double-edged sword first of all uh it's a blessing because uh i had the opportunity to have the best teachers out there not just my family but the crew of calypso and alcyon and, and going off on expedition from a, a young age scuba diving uh, really since I was four. Uh, and, and then of course, um, more importantly, going off on expeditions from seven years on, uh, I was exposed to people who were brilliant, who were pioneers, who were uh, intrepid and, and, and so well-versed in their world. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better classroom. And being uh, brought along on these adventures way before cell phones and all that stuff, uh, and being immersed 100% in an aquatic environment that um, very few people had gotten a chance at that point, and even to this day, get, uh, get a chance to explore in any, uh, any fundamentally important way, um, gave uh, sensibilities that are tools today that hopefully I can use in communicating uh, the beauty and importance of, of this uh, alien environment. Uh, and as, as part of the mission, as part of the philosophy, the most important thing that we can offer, that I can offer as a third generation, is the, not only the storytelling ability, but being able to communicate uh, something that, that could be deemed education, um, but in an empowering way to the general public so that they can get a better sense of the importance and the fragility of our ocean world. Uh, being a, a storyteller, and, and as a matter of fact, I wasn't actually planning on doing this, but now that we mentioned storytelling, or I mentioned storytelling, I mean, you know, being able to share some of these adventures through books like this from Simon and Schuster. Uh, this one's The Great White Shark Adventure. Uh, this one's Journey to the Arctic. Uh, and we have a few more coming out. 
uh, in that series um, brings virtual adventure in a comic book or in a, an illustrated format, thanks to, to Joe and James uh, and, my, and, and uh, our partnership, to eight to 12 year olds or, or young at heart that could go on these adventures and learn more about our ocean world and the importance and the excitement of it without necessarily getting wet. And so um, it, it's always a challenge because it's a double-edged sword as a Cousteau, you know, everyone has preconceived notions. My grandfather was a pioneer. He inspired hundreds of millions of people around the world. There's no arguing that. And he invented some tools that we all still use today. I mean, scuba is, is still around and uh, submersibles and, and all that sort of thing for scientific research. And, and, and so um, it, it's not something that I ever try to compare myself to because, uh, you know, people do it anyway for me. But um, it, it brings about preconceived notions that, that are always a, a struggle in these conversations uh, because he was unique. Um, and, and they were in an era that is very different than today. Um, but at the same time, we have opportunities to, and I say we because it's the family, but we have an opportunity to uh, stand on the shoulders of giants and really propel the message forward in a way that, um, that hopefully will resound for the next few generations. Yes. Well, I was one of those hundreds of millions that was profoundly influenced by your grandfather. You're the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, one of the grandsons of Jacques Cousteau. And he, he was the uh, co-inventor of the modern day scuba uh, regulator, two-stage regulator, which was the breakthrough technology that allowed us to be untethered to the surface and swim around freely like the fish, essentially. And uh, I always, I look at the, in my last book, Soul of the Sea and the Age of the Algorithm, I look at the, ocean, the decadal changes in the ocean from about 1950 onwards, and I look at the 1960s as the Enlightenment era, mm -hmm. brought about by your grandfather's giving everyday access to anyone that had, I remember the first regulator I bought was like 30 bucks. You know, you went down to Leachmere's and you could go diving, and it was an amazing transformation. You suddenly could see things down there. And uh, there is an expectation, and there is a bit of a, I want to call it a burden, but a opportunity and a, and a responsibility that comes with you. And you've, but you've cut yourself through, you've got your cred, you know, you've, you've been out there, you've done the stuff that makes it possible for you to speak with authority and, and uh, bring the world new knowledge. And, you know, I've seen you underwater <laughs> in a saturated environment and uh, you and I both do work with Discovery uh, Channel and other types. And we got, we've always, always last few years, you and I have talked about working together and we really do have to find a, a tangible, uh, I don't know, expeditionary component or something. You know, my great mentor, Teddy Tucker from Bermuda, knew your grandfather. Uh, and I got a lot of stories from him. Uh, <laughs> I used to go to his house and hang out because he was in Bermuda doing a, uh, a program back in I don't know when it was 50s or 60s you know so I've got all these these great stories which I've, I've even yet to have a chance to share with you uh, secondhand of course because I never knew him uh, well I'd love to hear them because all those behind the scenes stories are some of the best stories out there yeah, I've got a good one yeah. <laughs> we're gonna have to put it on the other the other channel <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, we'll have to talk offline. But I've 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 heard one recently from a, a local Belizean uh, about my grandfather visiting in the seventies. Uh, that was the, the 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 expedition that made the Blue Hole famous in Belize. But uh, it I'll, it's it's a funny one. But I'll, I'll I'll have to leave that for another day or when we meet when we meet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's good. Yeah. And I'll we'll we'll listeners. Not cutting you out. We will bring you these stories. <laughs> require you want me to be conscious of the fact this is a family show. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a great man. You know, one thing that Teddy always told me, Teddy Tucker, my mentor, who changed my life, uh, he said the reason Cousteau, he called him Cousteau as a generic, the reason Jean Cousteau was so successful was he put the time in, Teddy always said. Yes. Go somewhere and he would sit for, not sit, he would, he would stay on location for months yeah. until he got it. Yeah. Until he got it. He said, Teddy said, that was his secret. He said, he, he made it, Teddy made a joke once. He said, Jacques Cousteau could make a documentary in a bathtub. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, was, it was meant to be a compliment that he was like that good. <laughs> well, you, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, in today's world and instant gratification and everything else, especially, and you know, of course, cell phones and, and mobile devices don't, don't make it any easier um, uh, um, frame-wise, but nature doesn't care about our timelines and uh, production, you know, schedules and things like that. You have to sit there and, and dedicate the time to learn about that particular subject matter. And, and you know, we're, we're all trying to rush these things but nature doesn't care <laughs> it's going to go on its own timeline and we have to we have to figure out and it's thanks to people like yourself and teddy tucker and that whole network of folks who have dedicated their lives to to oceanic research and just to research in general that we're learning more about this amazing little planet that we live on um you know, it's, it's, it's not a one-man band, uh, you know, a Fabian Cousteau or Jacques Cousteau or whatever. It's really about the team. It's a team effort for all of us uh, getting together and doing what we do best uh, to be able to learn more about this so that we can make better decisions. You know, it, it really is about the team. And it's so important, and, and you're good at this, you're really good at this, that when you speak to, you're a great speaker, when you speak to the public, that you bring them into the story. It's their story too. It's not just your story. That's a that's a big a big issue for some speakers that they make it about themselves and what they did. Whereas you bring the world into your you make it possible for the world to be part of your your narrative. And I think that's that's the key to our our future. And also putting the time in. We've gotten too used to like in oceanography now, man. You get these young scientists, they want to find out what little island is close to the boat that they can fly into and get helicoptered out for their four days of research and right. then out, you know. Whereas back in the real days, the 1950s, 60s, when oceanography was, you know, blooming and we came up with plate tectonic theory and all the really important concepts, those guys used to go out for three months at a time. Yep. And they would write their papers on the boat on the way back. <laughs> they meet with their graduate students for a week or two and then they go back out. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I find that to be the best way. I mean, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, we have uh, the, the luxury of, of time in the field nowadays is, is quite a luxury. I mean, it, it, it obviously costs a lot of money. It takes a lot, a lot of time and, and to try and convince the powers that be to dedicate those resources is getting more and more difficult. 
Um, the, the last time I, I remember spending more than a few weeks on, a, on site uh, was in the Amazon River with my father and my sister uh, during uh, uh, Ocean Adventures for PBS, uh, which was the result of, of some of that. And we spent a total, we went back several times, we spent a total of 11 months in the field. Now, granted, not in all in one place. Uh, the Amazon is a huge water basin. Uh, but uh, we were able to cover a lot of topics in that amount of time because we were on site and, of course, good pre-prep and everything else. And it's, it's important for people to understand that you need to spend the time out there. You need to go out there and, and, and sometimes, often, it's not glorious. Often it's, you know, a lot of sitting and waiting and hoping that, that you're in the right place at the right time for the, for the action to, to happen. And a lot of times it's, it's just a matter of, of studying the same thing over and over and over again every day. And you know this better than anybody. But uh, at the end result is a very rich uh, story, a very rich data set, uh, and, a, and, and a huge, uh, hopefully a huge reward of learning more about that particular subject matter. Yeah, you know, to your point, and um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wind this down uh, pretty soon here, <laughs> uh, largely because we are a slave to uh, having uh, manageable in terms of time. But to your point, I live in California now, as you know, and you visited me here, and I visited you in New York, where you live, <clears throat> and I'm uh, lucky enough to be right on the water, and I have, I wouldn't call it a hobby, I did my PhD on dolphins. And there's a population of dolphins that live right offshore here in front of my condominium. And I go out every morning with my computer and my cell phone and start my work day with my drone, uh, but mostly just looking. And I want to share with you um, uh, some video that I just, just took uh, just the other day, which was pretty, pretty interesting. If I can make it come up here. Yeah, here it is. Uh, can you see that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, this is unedited uh, <laughs> drone footage from Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades. These are Triceops truncatus, the famous bottlenose dolphin flipper. And they live right here, right next to uh, California, Los Angeles airport, and all the activity that's around. You know, we are literally, you know, they're, look at, one just rolled over to look at the drone. <laughs> I always think that's funny. That, he went on his side to look up because he could hear the high frequency sounds coming. He's not scared or anything like that. Um, but uh, we are part of the ocean system now, Fabian. The uh, wilderness has a new meaning today. And I think we are part of it. You know, humanity has become part of the ocean, earth, atmospheric, terrestrial system. Uh, and we have to accept that. And we have to make it work. We have to do it sustainably and even regeneratively. I'm going to stop sharing the uh, dolphins now. Um, I love it. Uh, I love the work that you do. Uh, love you and everything. And let's, um, let's find that destination, that mutual target where we can get, you know, tanks on our backs and in the water and um, do our thing, expand our knowledge of the ocean and make a program or something, a research project. And, well, let's go to that beautiful island that uh, that you uh, that you're doing your research on, right behind you, right there. Right. And, and you know, I, just a, on a on a side on a on a on an end note for uh, with regard to dolphins, uh, as we've noticed, uh, and it was unfortunately very little reported in the news, 
because of the stay-at-home orders and the pandemic uh, and the lower human activity, uh, nature was starting to come out of its shell. You could see bigger, you know, pods of dolphins going in places that they used to go, but they stopped because there's too much human activity and they were coming back, uh, you know, in, in Italy, for example, and, and other places. And uh, it just, it's, a, it's an illustrator or a highlight that we are having a huge impact on our ecosystem because of our lack of consciousness of our big footprint. And if the more we can connect with the, the, the ocean, the more we can connect with our, our ecosystem, the more we can look forward to living with the planet than on the planet. And at the end of the day, it's exactly what you're highlighting, which is uh, in order for us to have a, 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 an optimistic future, uh, we need to be more integrated in our thoughts, in our emotions, with our little oasis in space. What a great note to, to end our podcast on. Thank you. You're a great communicator, Fabian. And I appreciate your time, your friendship, and uh, what you're doing. And uh, look forward to, can I, can I invite you back on the show someday? We'll absolutely, do- Greg. It'd be an absolute pleasure. And, and uh, just as importantly as that, I can't wait to see you in person so we can go diving together. As a matter of fact, you know, diving is uh, the, 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 the great social isolator, right? <laughs> so we, can, we might be able to do that even during the pandemic. <laughs> That's right. There's no virus going to get from anybody, anybody underwater. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care, my friend. Uh, thank you, listeners, for another episode of the CS Many Voices. Uh, thanks very much to our sponsors, the, uh, the uh, Bucks Mom Foundation, uh, Wendy Benchley, um, John Powell, Ed Shine, and others, Deep Green Metals. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you very much.